Okay, folks, Ecclesiastes. Um, picking up in five, we made it, finally got through chapter four uh, last week. From the very beginning of this particular book, uh, all the way back to chapter one, verse two, uh, Solomon has been writing about uh, life as uh, it is both experienced and as, as it is observed, uh, as Solomon puts it, under the sun. And so we've looked at how Solomon in chapter 2 talks about some of his own personal experiences, but it's not simply that. It's also Solomon, as we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4, talking about the things that he um, may not have personally experienced, but certainly things that uh, in the position of leadership that he had in, uh, in Israel and is a very influential leader, uh, really a, a worldwide uh, type figure, a very popular figure. Uh, he would have been exposed to a lot of things. Uh, read a lot of things, saw a lot of things, and so he's bringing that collective wisdom of things he's personally experienced and those things that he's observed, but he gives us at the very outset in chapter 1 this conclusion in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, that's Solomon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which means, and we've talked about this, uh, that life, from one standpoint, life is fleeting, Uh, life is, is certainly... A brief, it is very uh, transitory, it's, it's vapor-like. Uh, it's uh, very similar to where James says in James 4.14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Uh, so life is like, we might say, a soap bubble. Um, it's, it's very, very temporal. Uh, but that's not all that Solomon means by this statement. He also concludes that in in light of the cursed uh, condition of creation of the universe and, and, and the debilitating effects that, uh, that that has on our existence here on earth, uh, that life is also futile. Um, that is to say that it lacks substance or that it does not satisfy. Uh, it leaves us, we might say, feeling empty. Uh, and we have all experienced that at some point, certainly before we came to know Christ, we certainly uh, as Solomon did, not only ex- have experienced that ourselves, but we, we see it all around us uh, in, our, in our families. We see it in, our, in the workplace, in the culture. So life is futile. Uh, it's transitory. And not only that, but life is, as Solomon goes on to say, uh, it's incomprehensible or it's, it's enigmatic, uh, meaning that at the end of the day, we have lots of unanswered questions. And so uh, life is puzzling, and, and it's, it is to some extent frustrating. We've talked about how we, we try to, I mean, every human being is trying to figure this thing out to some extent, and, and every human being is trying to understand who they are and where they're going and, and, and why things happen. And there is a sense in which the, the Lord purposefully, we might say, does frustrate us so that we do turn to Him, we do trust in Him, uh, but we can all agree that life, to some, some extent or another, is puzzling and perplexing, perplexing. And even as believers, we have to agree that God is, um, we might say, God's purposes are unknowable. So we know, we know some of the things God is doing. I mean, God clearly in His Word tells us about His redemptive plan. He does, in some situations, give us explicit detail about what He's doing. And yet, even as believers, sometimes we think that we've got this thing figured out. And then all of a sudden something happens that sort of breaks the mold. It's like, well, I thought that life was supposed to go this way. And we've interpreted the scripture and we've read scripture and we've looked at examples and we think we can understand and we can predict. And then 
we get sort of a curveball, and we're reminded once again that God is the one that's in control and that we're, we're not. So things happen in life that, that remind us of that, that remind us that we're not in control of our destiny, that we're not inherently good, uh, that we are not immortal. Things and situations that happen that remind us that God is the creator, uh, that God is the, is the king over all things. He is the controller of all things, and he is the judge before whom we must give an account. And, and if we go through life not understanding that, if we go through life sort of resisting that reality, if we go through life um, not submitting to those realities and not trusting in Christ, then we will never find meaning and lasting satisfaction and enduring substance. We will continue, as Solomon says, striving after wind. We'll just continue in that, in that existence. We will continue to be disappointed because life from the perspective of that, of that we might say the completely secular individual is totally meaningless. So again, if we're talking about just life under the sun, don't factor God in, take God out of the equation, that's what we end up with, Futil, futility and, and vanity. So that, that's what Solomon has been emphasizing, and, and along the way, he's been showing in various avenues of life how this futility uh, sort of represents itself. So last week, we finished up with chapter 4, uh, and we saw th- where Solomon detailed a number of individuals and uh, in a number of different, we might say, scenes or in, in a number of different scenarios, each of which was equally sort of representative of human anticlimax uh, or we might say empty achievements. Uh, he, de- he depicted, and I'll just, just to, for those of you who may not have been here, just to refresh, refresh your, your mind what we talked about, uh, he depicts the person who is what we might refer to as a social climber. Uh, he does this, if you'll notice back in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry or, or a competition, we might say, or envy between a man and his neighbor. This, too, he says, is vanity and striving after wind. So he gives us this sort of portrait of the, of the guy that's trying to climb his way to the top and run over and step over whoever he has to to get there, uh, the one that's sort of keeping up with, with the Joneses. Uh, then he depicts the social dropout. So we've got the social climber, then we've got the social dropout in verse 5. This is, this is the guy that takes his hands off of life and, and puts no effort uh, into life. So he's the man that's folding his hands. It's basically not idolizing his work, but he's, he's idle in his work. So he might even be the guy that has seen the guy that is trying to clamor and make it to the top, and maybe he himself has attempted that at one point but become frustrated with that. And so he's swung and gone to the other extreme of, well, I'm just not going to do any of that. <laughs> um, so Solomon gives us that, that particular example. Uh, Solomon also depicts the, what we might call the compulsive moneymaker in verse 8, uh, who's all alone. This is a very 21st century man with no end to his toil. He says there in verse 8, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous task. So we have a social climber. We've got the social dropout. We've got a compulsive moneymaker. And then he describes, finally, in those last few verses, the deserted leader, beginning in verse 13. He talks about here sort of, uh, we hit this at the very end, 
it's, it's, a, it's a story, uh, sort of a mini story of a king, and this king is old, and he's not listening to counselors, wise counsel anymore. And so you have this king, and, and what we find out is this king is replaced by a younger man uh, who, after rising to a position of leadership, is also replaced by, uh, by someone else. So he gives us his sort of, there's a king, and then this guy comes up and takes his place, and then that guy, as he gets older, eventually his popularity wanes, and the things that people were cheering him for and, and thankful for, and like, this is the guy that's going to you know, fix everything and give us what we want. You know, this guy comes up, but then what they realize is that that's, no guy can do that. No man can, can satisfy the, those things. And we said last week, the problem, the reason why people are so quick to rally around revolutions is because they never expect the problem to be in themselves. <laughs> so that people in the culture rarely look to themselves as the problem. And so when things aren't going well, it's always, well, we need to get a new leader. And so that's sort of the thing that unfolds here. And, it's, and, and Solomon does that to drive home this point that that the cherished popularity of leaders is very precarious. It's very, it's very short-lived. Uh, that men and women reach the pinnacle of human glory only to be, as De- Derek Kidner says, only to be stranded there. <laughs> so that's the way they feel. It's like they get to that point, and then once they're there, they feel like that they're, that they're stranded, and they see the futility of it all. The fact that their popularity doesn't last and, and that their fame is, is fleeting. So in all these examples, this is what we talked about. This is sort of the thread maybe that goes through those examples is that all of these individuals, even going back and sort of grabbing the first part of the chapter about those who are uh, oppressed, uh, those who are, are treated un- unjustly and even back into the, the, the latter parts of, of chapter 3, that all of these individuals are lonely and all of these individuals are anxious. They're all lonely and anxious. Uh, the guy that's trying to make his way to the top, uh, he, unfortunately, he burns a lot of bridges getting to the top. And, and then when he gets there, he's threatened, right? I mean, if he's at the top, he doesn't want somebody else to take his place. And so he is afraid to surround himself with, with, with good people. I mean, very few people do that. Uh, sometimes they surround themselves with what we call yes men, right? Um, so they sacrifice a lot. They sacrifice a lot of time. They sacrifice a lot of energy. They some sacrifice their, their families to get to that point. Then you have the guy, though, that's folding his hands and not doing anything, but really he's also anxious and lonely. <laughs> he's lonely because nobody wants to be around that guy, right? I mean, do you like to be around people that just sit around and are lazy and unproductive? Nobody, you don't wanna, they don't attract a lot of sincere, strong, close relationships in their life, and so people avoid them too. And they're just as anxious because they aren't working. And so they're sort of anxious about, well, where's their next meal going to come from? Because they're, they're completely unproductive. Uh, then you have this example of, of, of these travelers. He goes out on the highway and he's looking at these different people talking about the, the advantages of, of having a companion. We get to the end of the chapter. We see this example of a king. And again, this, this king, he gets to this place of leadership and he, just like all those others, are lonely and anxious. Right, so that's that is sort of the the thing that kind of runs through and ties a lot of those those examples together. These are all people that have no real comfort, no contentment, no no true companionship, and no continuity. So uh, life is truly vanity. 
it is vanity. Cecil Rhodes, who, who lived in the latter half of the 19th century, he was a, he was a British uh, imperialist, a businessman. He was a, a mining tycoon in, in the southern part of, of Africa, uh, a politician that was responsible for opening up large tracts uh, in, in southern Africa. But on his deathbed, and you, it's interesting, you, you go to read this history, you know, you either one of these guys, you either really like him <laughs> or you hate him. And he was in some places he's exalted as like a, a, a this great leader in South Africa, but for most people he's not. And but this is interesting that after all of this sort of conquering and and again climbing socially and and climbing economically, he says this on his deathbed. Quote: I found much in Africa, diamonds, gold, and land are mine. But now I must leave them all behind. Not a thing I've gained can be taken with me. I have not sought eternal treasures. Therefore, I actually have nothing at all. <laughs> uh, was he a Christian? Was he a believer? Did he get converted? I, I don't know. I don't know about that part of his life, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people chasing the wind. We're talking about people doing all of these things only to get to that point at the end to realize that it is truly a soap bubble. <laughs> and that even though they've gained all the gold and the silver and all these this popularity and this power, they actually have nothing at all. They have nothing at all. That's sort of what Solomon's and again, this isn't just observation. For him, a lot of it was experience. I mean, this is a guy, the kingdom expanded. He was given great wisdom uh, uh, by God to lead. Uh, he oversaw the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, all these great military feats, all these things were going on. And yet again, Ecclesiastes seems to be this, this looking back over life and saying, this is, uh, <laughs> you have to be careful. I mean, I personally believe Solomon was a believer um, and that he still sinned. He still had times in, in his life when he didn't trust the Lord. And there were times in his life when he did put his hope and his trust in the wrong things. And it let him down dead in the streets. And we've talked about some of that. But this is, the, this is what we see. This human, this human, you think it's climax. They get to this point, this pinnacle, but it's just a huge letdown when they get there. Empty achievements. Now, how does chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes connect to chapter 5? Because when you get to chapter 5, verse 1, you, you almost feel like, a oh, okay, well, hey, now we're talking about going to the temple and worship, and we're talking about these different, in a sense, different issues. Uh, but not really, because here's, and here may be one, one way to think about this. Um, if you think back over chapter 4, and you, you, you think to yourself, you know, I, I think I passed the test of chapter 4. <laughs> so let's just say you, you, you look back over chapter 4 and you, and you think about that compulsive moneymaker or that social climber or that lazy guy or the person with no friends or that, that, that big, you know, that king, that guy that's in a high position of leadership. And you say to yourself, well, for the most part, I mean, that chapter doesn't really affect me all that much because I've, I've got a few friends and, well, I'm not a great leader and I'm certainly not lazy. I mean, I do have a job and, you know, I don't think I'm that competitive. You know, so I, I think it's almost like we, we could go through chapter four and we could, we might let ourselves off the hook. We might see those portraits and think, 
yeah, those people, yeah, that guy, in fact, we might feel like the one that got stepped on by the social climber, right? We might feel like we're the one that's being sort of victimized here, and we go through chapter 4, and we just check those things off and say, well, that, that doesn't, those things really don't apply to me. Well, chapter 5 hits us with a charge that is very difficult to overcome. <laughs> so, um, it's as if, I think, if you, if you think that you pass the test of chapter 4, there's not a single person in this room that will pass this next test. Because this next test uh, hits us in an area that we, it's, it's inescapable. Uh, it, it addresses a heart attitude that we deal with sometimes that, um, that we, can't, we will not be able to walk away from these next six verses and say that he's not talking about me. <laughs> if you go through this week and next week as we look through these seven verses and you have that attitude, please come see me. We'll talk. We'll go to lunch because I have a hard time, honestly, even standing up here and teaching this section because it's just that difficult. It's just that difficult to wrestle with the reality that, that we put on a show sometimes, don't we, in this, in this arena of worship. So there is, Solomon says, there is another futility that he's going to deal with. Uh, There is an emptiness, if you will, a vanity and an emptiness that he is going to confront, and it is this, the meaninglessness of mechanical worship. The meaninglessness of mechanical worship. Uh, A formalism, we might call it. Uh, Or we might even say a routine, Right, a routine that does not impact our lives in a good way. And while we may go through chapter 4 somewhat unscathed, uh, we are inescapably and deeply challenged by what Solomon says in these, in these verses. So let me read them to you. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Uh, Chuck Swindoll in his book, Living on the Ragged Edge, I've, I've pulled a number of quotes from that as we've gone along, but he says... Uh, in, uh, regarding this particular section, quote, So many of Solomon's ideas and observations are horizontal musings. The bitter, barren, boring sided of life seen through disillusioned eyes. But on a few rare occasions, the man breaks out of his cynical syndrome. And at those times, his, his comments contain a remarkable vertical perspective that scrapes away the veneer of empty religion and takes us back to the bedrock of a meaningful relationship with the living Lord, end quote. So 
So what, what exactly is Solomon doing in, this, in these verses? Well, as we look back, again, over chapter 4, we've seen Solomon, if you will. He's visited the courtroom. Uh, he's seen the, the imbalance. He's seen the lack of justice in, in that place. Uh, he's visited the marketplace. Uh, he's visited the highway, those who are, are traveling, uh, those who might be traveling alone who are exposed to, to danger and the elements. And then he ends chapter 4 visiting the palace. And so it's as if he's sort of looking around, if you will, at these various segments, uh, areas of life, and going, what about vanity in that context? What about vanity in that context? And so he sort of made his way around, and basically what he decides to do now, to do now at this point is, is to pay a visit to the temple. Uh, that, that, that incredible structure uh, whose construction that Solomon himself had supervised uh, he watches the worshipers come and go. Uh, he observes them praising God. He observes them praying and sacrificing and, and making vows. He, he then notes that many of them are not at all sincere in their worship. And he targets this particular kind of individual. And we, again, we, the temptation for us is to go, oh yeah, he's targeting that kind of individual, but really he's, he's targeting us. <laughs> um, He's targeting the kind of person that comes to worship, I don't know, off and on or fairly consistently. He's targeting the person that sings uh, a few of the tunes that they like and then complains about the ones that, that they don't like. He, he's targeting that person who, who, uh, who attends worship and only gives half an ear to what is said, um, who leaves worship without making any sort of change that he felt that he might need during the preaching or the teaching. Uh, now in verse 1, Solomon, Solomon makes reference here to the temple. He refers to it as the house, he calls it the house of God, which is really, you go all the way back to, to Genesis, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's used actually to describe places of worship even prior to the construction of the tabernacle, but it's certainly there's references to, describe, to that term used to describe the tabernacle uh, in Israel. And then of course, uh, Solomon makes this reference in his own day. It would have been a reference to the temple, which was, which was really a, a massive structure. I wish I had a way to, to show you what it looked like. You might could, you know, you can find images, images of that. Uh, but just a, a spectacular structure, very different from we might say the contemporary uh, architecture, which tends to be more horizontal uh, than vertical. So. Uh, contemporary architecture tends to to encourage us to think more on this plane, um, and I think that's because we we want to. I would even say this: that Christians in general, professing believers in general, we might say churchgoers in general, want to think of God not as someone who's transcendent. They don't want to think of of God uh, as as someone who is high and lifted up and, and lofty and, and beyond all of this. Uh, they want to think of God as someone who is down here beside us, uh, our homie. I mean, yeah, and, and you, I mean, I'm saying you literally hear these kinds of terms even in preaching now. I mean, like, you know, God is my homeboy or this kind of stuff. That we just want to bring God down to where he's just this sort of a, a pal, a friend. Um, and I understand... To some extent, where why people are because there's a balance here, right? I mean, God is the King of the universe, and yet God is with us. So, and we'll talk about that element next week. But 
But I just think in general, that's not our problem. Okay, our, our problem is not that, at least in our culture, that we have such a high and lofty view of God that we don't see him as someone that is personally involved in our lives. I, at least in our context, I think we tend to, to do the, the opposite. I think we tend to bring God down. We, 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 want, we want to think of God as someone, we might say, that is easy to behold, not someone that is uncomfortable to behold. Uh, we want to think of, of God as being a God who, who sees things the way that we see things, not as a God who will hold us accountable. And as a result, we, we turn praise and worship sort of inside out. Uh, we begin, unfortunately, with ourselves <laughs> and what we need and what we desire, and that's sort of the way a lot of churches pop up even in our own community, right? It's a survey. It's basically what does the community want? And so we go out and we find out what people want, and then we completely launch our church based upon the felt needs of people. That's, what's that? Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's morphed. It's, I mean, we've seen this for, for decades uh, in, our, in our country, but it, it's just so, it's just so, it, it's not even, it, I mean, it, it's just accepted at this point. Like there was a transition where it seemed like that that was the way, it was going from this old way of viewing things to this new way. Now it's just, this is what it is. I mean, it's all around us. We begin with ourselves, what we want. Uh, and, and what we want to get out of this opportunity and what we want to get out of some worship experience or what we want to gain from being at church this morning. That's where we start. What do I want to get out of church this morning? And then we pick our songs and we pick our location and we pick our activities and all those things based upon that. Now, we know as we think about this passage that the most significant thing is not the place, right? It's not the place where we gather, but what happens when we gather, Okay? So when we think about the application of Ecclesiastes 5, we need to think of it in relation to, say, Ephesians 2, 19. Let me read, let me read it. 2, 19 to the end of the chapter, Paul says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Okay? So in our day, the house of God is, is no longer a... It, it's, it's not a holy building. Uh, it, we, the believing people, are the house of God. And yet, we don't read this section and go... Well, that was for those guys. You know, that was in the context of the temple, and that was in the context of, of Israel. And we, we don't certainly walk away and fail to capture the heart implication of what Solomon is saying. No, we take that, and then we bring it up into our context so that we don't, we don't miss what, what Solomon says here that's so, so important for us to understand. So we gather, folks, we're, we are gathering as the people of God this morning. And as we gather... We need to be as careful as what Solomon is saying here about these individuals. At least as careful, if not more, right? I mean, we certainly have a, a greater understanding of what God expects and what's going on here, right? So we need to be at least as careful about this whole issue of, of worshiping God and gathering as, as his people. That is to say... 
Church under the sun warrants caution. We're gathering for church this morning, but we're also living life on this earth. And we've talked about the effects of living life outside of Genesis 2, right? We're this side of the garden and we're on this side. This is not heaven. And when we come to church, listen, it warrants caution when we come to church. Um, even the church that worships God as the Bible reveals him. Because fools run amok in the church. Fools run amok in the church. Again, it's not always those fools, right? I keep pointing over here. I feel bad. My family, I got family members over here. <laughs> Never do this. Never go left. I always go right. And unfortunately, my daughter and her husband... Fools, <laughs> run on us. <laughs> so don't, don't take it personal if I pointed you. <laughs> Fools, okay, run amok in the church. This back and forth battle, if you will, between folly and wisdom that is so prevalent in the marketplace, it does not retreat as if there is some sort of invisible force field or some sort of uh, a moat that stands between it and the gathering of God's people on Sunday. We bring that foolishness in here. Does that make sense? In other words, it's, it's not that foolish world out there and then we come together as if there's no foolishness going on, potentially, in our gathering is, is a group of believers. So whether you're in a church or out of it, people under the sun exhibit folly. And this is what Solomon observes. Solomon observes that too many of God's people approach worship with a lackadaisical attitude, with a lack of true true reverence for holy things, the Holy One Himself. And that's manifested in a number of ways. It's manifested through our attitudes, it's manifested through mannerisms, it's manifested through the the way in which we approach the place of worship, the time of worship. It it manifests itself through the type of obedience or lack of obedience in our lives as we gather. It manifests itself through uh, the sacrifices that are brought and the prayers that are offered and the vows of service to which people commit themselves, extravagant prayers wild promises, unguarded commitments, vain repetition. I mean, all these things. In fact, next time we'll we'll jump over to, in fact, I was talking to, I think it was Matt last week, we mentioned about Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of connecting points between Ecclesiastes and Sermon on the Mount. This is one of those. You can think of it in in, in Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking about the the prayers and, and, and and the giving of alms and the fasting and how worship can become this external thing when there's no heart in it. And the Lord, the Lord sees through all of these things. So to the one who presents himself or herself for worship, Solomon says, it is possible for you and it's possible for me to engage in a worship that is as meaningless as the other areas that have been highlighted in chapter 4. So, in other words, he's saying, that foolishness and meaninglessness that's experienced in the marketplace and in the, in the, in the, uh, the courtrooms and... And, and out there in the byways, in the highways, and in political offices, guess what? 
that meaninglessness and that emptiness can be going on in the gathering of God's people. Now, you know, people use this as an excuse, right? I mean, we've all heard this as hypocrisy thing, right? People outside the church often point out the hypocrisy of those in the church. And, and it's true that they should focus more on Christ. I mean, that's kind of our, you know, well, those people, they just, you know, don't let that stop you. You just need to, you know, focus on the Lord. And, 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 and that's true. But yet, it's also true that they should be able to look into the lives of professing Christians and see the difference between light and darkness, right? I mean, they should put their focus on Christ, and hypocrisy should not keep them from seeking the Lord and seeking His truth and seeking the fellowship of of, of the saints and all those things and submitting to spiritual leadership, all those things. Yes, they should be doing those things, but they should also be able to look into the life of a local church and see the difference between light and darkness. They should be able to look into the life of believers and see the difference between what is reality and what is routine. They should be able to see the difference between faith in Christ, vibrant faith in Christ, and just empty formalism. That should be obvious to them when they look into the church. So how do we steer, steer clear of those things? How do we steer clear of the meaninglessness of mechanical worship? Well, the first thing he says in verse 1, this is all we're going to cover today, guard your steps, verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So this is about approaching the presence of God. He says, guard your steps as you go. Now, just a little plug here. He doesn't say if you go. Okay? So for the person that uses the hypocrisy in the church to say, you know what? I'm not doing that because of the hypocrites. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's as if Solomon is saying, listen, when you go, this is, you're going to observe this too. But don't stop going. You need to go But as you go, just understand, you're going to see a little bit of this going on, and guess what? You might actually be contributing (laughs) to it. That's the main point, I think, is that you need to be watching your own life. So this issue of guarding your steps as you go, it, it can refer to the idea of the worshiper preparing for worship by his or her obedience to God beforehand. I mean, after all, think about it. Obedience to the word of God in private life prepares the believer for participation in public worship. One of the greatest things you can do to prepare for public worship is to be privately obedient in your life to the word of God throughout the week, right? I mean, if you could care nothing nothing about during the week of obeying God's word, then obviously you're going to be a fool when you come to to worship, right? So it's a sense of, of... preparation. It's, it's about entering, of course, in, in Solomon's context, it was about entering the temple with reverence. George Barton in his commentary suggests the following paraphrase of this, this particular verse. Do not run to the place of worship thoughtlessly or because it is the fashion to go frequently, but consider the nature of the place and thy purpose in going. In other words, we should not approach worship lightly. We should, should not approach worship lightly. We should not approach worship without intentional preparation in heart, head, and hand. And this is the reality. I mean, this is the thing that just that, that really strikes me as you, as, as you think about what he's saying here. We don't do a very good job of this. We just don't do a very good job of preparing for worship. 
think about this difference. There is a difference between going to a movie and going to a symphony or a ballet. How many of you have ever been to a, a symphony or a ballet? Okay. Uh, very different. When I go to a movie, um, I get there in enough time to buy my ticket. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, we're parking the car, we're pulling up, we're parking the car, we're jumping out, somebody's getting in line, we're getting the tickets. Hopefully, we got enough time, even if we're a couple minutes late. Got to get your popcorn. You got to pay $8 to get popcorn. You got to buy your $17 Coke. You rush into the theater. You know what the first part's about right anyway, right? It's just a bunch of advertisements, and so you just get in there. But your goal is to just get your food, get your ticket, and get a seat before the actual movie begins, right? You don't do that at a symphony. You don't do that at a ballet. In fact, when I, the first date I ever took my wife on was to the Nutcracker Ballet. So I, had to, I had to hook her early. I had to get that. <laughs> had to make a big impression. So we went to Rays on the River down in, uh, off the perimeter restaurant, a little double date with me and a friend of mine. Had four tickets to the Nutcracker Ballet down at the Atlanta Civic Center. Very different than Cherokee Cinema 16, okay? Very, the, for one thing, the floors aren't greasy and slippery. Now, you don't almost slip with your popcorn in your coat. But when you go to the symphony, you get there early enough to not be rushed, Right? And if you, those of you who said you've been to one, right? You get there early. You take your time. You don't want to be rushed. You, you want to, they, they print the program. They give you the program. You want to see you know, these, if it's different acts or different scenes. You kind of want to figure it out. If there's a storyline or whatever, you want to sort of take in the surroundings. The, if, it's an orchestra, if it's an orchestra, even if it's at a ballet or some other production and the orchestra's there, they're typically warming up their instrument. That's just cool. You, know, that, that whole, you just want to take all of that in. Okay? And what I'm saying is that I don't think that we distinguish sometimes the movie theater and church. That that sort of rush, get your ticket, get your drink, go sit down and just barely make it in there before it gets started. That that, that rush, rush, lack of preparation, we have a, we have, we're assuming that's acceptable. To come flying into church on Sunday morning and just like, whoo, man, you know, just, just get it. And then all of a sudden, Lord's Supper. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about, I was mentioning John Hartwell, the frustration of going down Main Street on Sunday morning. There's no traffic on Main Street. Why do I have to do 25 miles an hour? It is crazy. It's like there's not a soul around. And so you're going down through there, 45, 35, 25, and you feel like you're not even moving. The 25 is slow. <laughs> and I felt like, I asked him, I told him, it was like NAS, I know what NASCAR drivers feel like now when they get on pit road. They're used to driving, you know, 190, 200 miles an hour, and then they have to come down to, say, 50, 55 miles an hour. It's got to be agonizing for them to, to watch that speedometer and know that they're going to be penalized a lap, I think, if they exceed that, that speed limit. And so it's like so for some people coming into church, it's, it's that kind of whiplash, right? I mean, 190 miles an hour, and then Shane says, when the ushers come forward, we're going to enjoy, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you're like downshifting big time, you know. I mean, the tires are squealing. You know, you're going to burn your clutch out but trying to get prepared mentally for what's coming. Do we really believe that we can worship God when we arrive to, to the service? And again, you guys are in Sunday school, so <laughs> I'm not per se picking on but some folks, okay, do we really think that if we, that we can arrive eight minutes after the service starts? 
without any real preparation of heart and mind and think that that is pleasing to God and that we're not going to do something foolish. My hunch is that when we come into church and one of those types of, and that kind of situation is unfolding, there's a really good chance that we do and say some foolish things. For one, the very lack of preparation itself is foolish. But think about the folly that may come as a consequence of showing up with that kind of mentality of not realizing that we are worshiping the Holy One. And yeah, we enjoy, and we don't want it to be stiff and tidy. We're not talking about music selections. We're not talking about how quiet it is or how loud it is. Because listen, folks, you can have a loud drummer that's humble, and you can have a quiet singer that's arrogant. We're not talking about styles. We're not talking about all that kind of stuff. We're talking about personal preparation. We're talking about guarding your steps as you come. So this verse confronts all of those who show up to church fairly consistently, who may like to sing, but who listen halfway and never quite get around to applying the scriptures in their lives. They have reduced their worship to verbal doodling. Y'all ever doodle? Are you a doodler on the phone? You ever do that? Just kind of take your pen and you're just doing like this as you're talking to somebody? You ought to pay attention to those things. In fact, there's books written on what that means in your life. If you want to, you know, there's psychologists that will break that down for you. Do you draw circles? Do you draw people or arrows? You know, it says a lot about you when you're doodling, right? But the point is this, you're doing that, it's almost like you're not even paying attention, right? I mean, you're not really concentrating on that thing you're doing. You're half listening and you're sort of half drawing. And I'm just saying, spiritual doodling, that's kind of what goes on sometimes when people come. They come into the, to, to, to worship, and, and it's just sort of this routine thing, and they just are kind of just doodling mentally, spiritually, and it's unfortunate. It's folly. We just get into a routine, hymns that once filled our hearts with joy and praise, scriptures that we once read because we were hungry for nourishment and to know God. We have replaced reality with strict observance and mechanical formalism has replaced heartfelt thanksgiving. That's the issue. But to come to worship prayerfully, to to come to worship expectantly, prayerfully expectant, takes time and thought and preparation. So Solomon says, guard your steps. And then he says, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listening here, it presupposes a spoken word. Therefore, worshipers should come to hear God's word spoken. And not just to listen, but to listen with the intention to obey. This is is always a listening with an intention to obey. In contrast, someone might choose the alternative by offering the sacrifice of fools which might refer to bringing a sacrifice that does not qualify or, or offering a sacrifice without the right heart attitude. It most likely refers to the tragedy of going through the motions of offering a sacrifice while pouring out a flood of empty words but having no true awareness of God. And then notice what he says at the end of the verse, for they do not know they are doing evil. They're so foolish that they do not even realize that their sacrifices are evil and offensive to God, so dull of spiritual understanding that they actually think that they are doing something good and acceptable. But the scripture says here that they're dull. They have no reverence for the truth. In other words, Solomon is saying that foolish 
churchgoers express a clueless or a blind hypocrisy. Ironically, they recognize the need for sacrifice, but they look to themselves and to external appearances. They take part in religious ceremony and observances and look to that, to that participation in order to justify themselves as being close to God and good among people. But they are woefully unaware of their true selves. Their persona becomes a way of life for them. They might even put some people off. They might, have, they might, might offend people and rub people the wrong way, but even in that, even if they are offending others with their actions and their attitudes, they'll still think that any dislike for them is unwarranted. They won't see that it's them. They, they won't think about themselves as being the problem. So we need to go to church, but we need to go with a receptive attitude and a readiness to listen rather than, than to lecture God on what he ought to do or how we think things should be run. We need to guard our steps to enter thoughtfully, to expect to be taught something. You ought to come to church expecting to be taught something, something important, <laughs> very, very important. We need to listen carefully. And, and the concept that really rises to the top in this whole section is, is the issue of, of God-centered worship. It's this issue that worship is, is to be God-centered and not man-centered. Because the real problem in our worship is that our view of God has grown too small and our view of ourselves has grown too large. Remember when Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus 3? It says in, in verse 3 of that chapter, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord, the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses, verse 6, hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God is worthy of our praise, our reverence, our silence, our expectancy, our preparation, and our sacrifice. So here's the question, folks, Till we pick up verse 2 next time. Are you just here for another service? Are you just here for another song? Stephen Charnock, in his book, Discourses on the Existence and Attributes of God, said this, When we believe that we ought to be satisfied rather than God-glorified, we set God below ourselves. Imagine that he should submit his own honor to our advantage. We make ourselves more glorious than God as though we were not made for him, but he made for us. This is to have a very low esteem of the majesty of God. So we got Lord's Supper this morning. <laughs> You're about to go in there. Um, we also, the last I heard, uh, we have a situation that we're going to bring up a discipline situation in our, in our church. Um, and let me just encourage you, is that if that plays out, don't dare have the thought, as Shane is sharing about that, how could they? The question is, what about me? Why not me? That's, that's the kind of preparation we need. This is about our heart. This is about our intentions. 
Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Okay? All right, we'll stop there. We'll pick up uh, in verse 2, and Lord willing, we'll finish out this section down in verse 7 next week. Okay, folks, thank you for your time.